Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, worship team. And I want to invite you this morning to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis 38. Genesis 38. Uh, And once you find Genesis 38, I want you to keep a finger there and then actually flip ahead to Matthew chapter 1. I want you to have both of those passages open in front of you today. This morning is day one of a five-week-long celebration of the Incarnation. And I want to maybe define that word before we go any further, because while many of you know what incarnation means, perhaps some of you don't, and that could make for a long five weeks. Um, when Amanda and I were in the Dominican, we, we did this mission trip for three months, and I don't know any Spanish, but she does. And the, the little boys in the camp loved playing basketball, and because I was taller than an average Dominican, they thought I was something. And uh, I'm not, but they thought I was. And so I would often walk by, and they'd say, they'd say oh, hola, hola, who got a basketball? And I'd say... Our, our means, right, it means now. So I would say, ahora, no. Ahorita, si. I thought ahorita meant later. And so then I would walk, and they, the, this like, swarm of boys would follow me. And I thought, man, they think I'm something, right? They'd follow me all the way back. I'd go to the medical clinic where Amanda was staying, and we'd have lunch, and this crowd of irritated but excited boys would be outside the window. And uh, this happened for months. We were there for three months. And it, it wasn't until the end of our trip, when Amanda finally asked, what are you saying to these guys all the time? And I said, ahora no, ahorita si. And she said, ahorita means right now. <laughs> so, and so these poor boys were always, that was a long story to explain why. It's important to know what words mean. <laughs> Incarnation is a Latin word. It literally means in flesh. In flesh. The incarnation describes one of the greatest, most incomprehensible mysteries of the Christian faith. And sometimes we blow by it, especially if you've grown up in the church. Sometimes it's like we miss the glorious mystery. God became a man. That's who Jesus is. He's divinity clothed in humanity. Truly God, truly man, God incarnate. And that's what Christmas is about. God saw us in our need. You see, there's this massive gulf between our holy God and a sinful people. We've created this chasm because of our sin, right? Sin separates us. And God saw that there was this great chasm, and so He sent His Son to, in effect, build a bridge between a holy God and a sinful people. I love what one commentator says here. He says, To be of any use, a bridge across a chasm or river must be anchored on both sides. You can picture that, right? So with one foot planted in eternity, he planted the other in time. He who was the eternal Son of God became the Son of Man. And across this bridge, the man Christ Jesus, we can come into the very presence of God, knowing that we are accepted because we have a mediator, one who represents us as men before our holy God. That's what we're celebrating in Christmas. This great chasm that we created with our sin has now been bridged. Jesus Christ has made a way. Long lay the world in sin and error pining. Longing, realizing that something is desperately broken. Maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. You're just visiting. Do you get the sense that something is desperately broken in this world? And long lay the world in sin and error pining, just lamenting that something's wrong till He appeared, and the soul felt its worth, and a weary world rejoices. That's what Christmas is about. 
There is a way home now. Jesus has come into this brokenness and shown us that there is hope as we celebrate it today. A glorious future. God with us. Emmanuel. That's what we're going to be celebrating for the next five weeks. And it is a worthy cause. And as we celebrate, we're going to make our way through Matthew's genealogy, which is why I had you flip with me to Matthew chapter 1. So this genealogy is going to shape our celebration. So would you look now with me? We're going to read from verses 1 to 3 of Matthew 1. Hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, living and active word to us today. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now who is ready to celebrate? We are... <laughs> this text feels like an odd choice to structure our Christmas celebration. Granted, I see that. We don't typically read genealogies with a great sense of expectation. We take a deep breath and we stumble through these names that we don't know how to pronounce and we wonder why God would have us do this. Is there any purpose in these lists at all? And I would tell you this morning that there is a purpose. In fact, there are many purposes in these lists. Now, the primary purpose of the genealogy in Matthew is that Matthew, he's writing to a a primarily Jewish audience, and he wants them to see that Jesus is the long-awaited descendant of David. Jesus is the king in the line of David that we have been longing for. That's the primary point of this list. And you've probably heard that over the last few Christmases. But, but there are actually some secondary, tertiary points in this list, and that's where I want to focus our celebration this Christmas. I want to look at some of the often overlooked aspects of this genealogy. You know, Matthew, he highlights five women in this list, and that's significant. The first woman is found here in verse 3. If you look there again, he says, And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, by Tamar. That seems like an unnecessary addition. If, If his only purpose was to prove that Jesus was a descendant of David, then he didn't need to mention Tamar at all. He didn't mention Rachel. He didn't mention Rebecca. He didn't mention Sarah. So why on earth is he honing in on on Tamar? It seems like an unnecessary, curious addition. But this isn't a list for history's sake. Matthew's teaching us with this list. Matthew is shaping us with this genealogy. The inclusion of Tamar is significant, and it's an intentional footnote that Matthew's chosen to include in the telling of the Christmas story. Here's the problem. As I said, he was writing to a primarily Jewish audience, which means that they were familiar with the Old Testament. And so when they heard Tamar's name, the bell rung and they, they got it. But I would imagine for many of us in this room, the bell's not rung. We're unfamiliar with our Old Testaments, many of us. We're unfamiliar with the story of Tamar. And so we're not seeing what we need to see. To that end, we need to look now to Genesis 38. Who is Tamar? What is her story? Why does Matthew mention her here? Look with me now. This is a long text, and so our approach today is I'm going to read a block of the text, and then I'm going to stop and explain what we've read, and then we'll jump back in. But I do want to say off the top, particularly uh, parents, if you've got your kids with you, this is one of the top three weirdest chapters in in the Bible. You'll probably have some questions to answer on your way home. You can email me about that later, and we'll walk through it. It's It's weird. It is. 
We're going to read some things that are going to make us grimace today. And yet, Matthew has attached this curious footnote to the Christmas story for a reason. And we need to see it. So let's look now to Genesis 38 and listen closely to the story. I'm going to begin and read verses 1 to 5. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezib when she bore him. So let's pause there. And what's happening in these first five verses is we're zooming in on the story of Judah. Judah is one of the 12 sons of Jacob, which means that these are one of the 12 tribes of Israel that's, that's being birthed, okay? That's who Judah is. And if you look at your Bible, I hope you have it open, the placement of this story is very significant. If you look back at chapter 37, the heading of my Bible says, Joseph's Dreams. This is the story of Joseph, another one of the brothers. And if you flip ahead to chapter 39, it's Joseph and Potiphar's wife. And this continues. This is a story about Joseph. And yet right smack in the middle of it, we have this little excursus talking about Judah. Why is that? Did Moses kind of have a, did he slip in his train of thought? No, of course not. Moses was an intentional storyteller. And he has inserted Judah into the story of Joseph for the purpose of contrast, to show us just how broken Judah was. We don't have time today to talk about the story of Joseph, though most of you are likely familiar with that, I'm going to assume. Uh, Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat, right? That's who we're talking about. Joseph was a nobleman, a righteous man. In chapter 37, we hear the story about how Joseph's father loved him more than all the rest. And this made the other brothers very jealous. And they threw him in a pit, and they were going to leave him for dead. But then Judah was the one who piped up and said, I've got a better idea. This Judah that we're reading about today, Judah said, let's take Joseph out of the pit and let's sell him into slavery. And so that's what they did. And they lied to their father and they told him that Joseph was dead. And then when we look at chapter 39, we pick up the story where Joseph is being um, confronted by Potiphar's wife. She's making some sexual advances towards him. But he's too righteous to go along with it. And so he flees from that lust and that passion. It's a story about how righteous Joseph is, but right in the middle we see the story of Judah. Not so righteous Judah. We pick up in, in verses 1 to 5 and we find Judah falling in love with Canaanite women and choosing to marry them. Uh, and these, of course, are forbidden women. When God gave his people the land, he warned them not to marry the Canaanites. God told the people that if they married the Canaanites, they would fall into their way of living. The Canaanites did some wicked, horrible, awful things. And God knew, if you marry the Canaanites, you will do these wicked, evil, awful things. In Genesis 28, we read, Then Isaac called Jacob, and he blessed him, and he directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women, because to be a son of Abraham was to be distinct from the Canaanites. But here's Judah, and he's marrying a Canaanite woman, and, and he's about to spiral into a life of sin and rebellion. And so that's what, that's what we're supposed to see in this text. Here is Judah. Here is the one who is going to be included in the family tree of Jesus Christ. You would expect Joseph to be in the tree, but no, God has chosen Judah. And here is his messy, awful story. Look back into the text. We're going to look at verse 6. 
It says, And Judah took a wife from Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. So let's pause there. As I said, this is a weird story. This is the story that you hope your coworkers don't find and talk to you about at the water cooler. <laughs> and yet it's here, right? This is the book that God has authored for us. It's here. And I think this is maybe a helpful time to explain the difference between a prescriptive text and a descriptive text. So let's do that quickly. A prescriptive text tells us what people ought to do. So we're in 1 Timothy right now. That's what we've been working through as a church. And those are prescriptive texts. Here's how you ought to live. Well, there are also descriptive texts in the Bible. They tell us how men and women lived with no comment on whether or not it was good or bad. This is a descriptive text, and I will tell you, this is bad. This is not prescriptive. Don't do what we're reading about in this text. We are supposed to read this story and to learn from the horrible, wicked, awful story that's unfolding. That's, that's what we're doing today. To be clear, no heroes in Genesis 38, okay? The hero comes later, in Matthew 1, to be exact. That being said, let's unpack what we've just read. First, we find this, the first son, his name is Ur. And we're not told exactly what Ur did that was so wicked, but it must have been awful. Because this is actually the first man in the Bible who is judiciously struck down by God for his wickedness. Who is singled out as being over and above wickeder than all the rest and struck down by God. That's remarkable because if you've read the first 37 chapters of Genesis, there are some pretty awful folks in there. But Ur stands above the rest. That's Tamar's first husband. He is struck down and now she's got no children and no husband. And so Moses speaks, or Moses, Judah speaks to his second son, Onan, and he says, Onan, you need to give Ur an heir. You need to impregnate Tamar. Now, Onan begins to, well, I, let me explain. First of all, why would he even say that? Here's the thing. This is written to uh, people living in an agrarian society. So this is a society that lived off of hard work and tilling the fields, which meant that if you weren't capable of really strong physical labor, you're going to have a hard time providing for yourself in this culture. Uh, moreover, in this culture, the land and the inheritance is all passed down through the males of the family. And if you put that together, if you are a widow who has no male son in the ancient Near Eastern world, you're going to be in a heap of trouble. And that was Tamar's situation. And so Judah said to Onan, he said, you need to give her an heir. You need to give her a son who can then inherit everything that Ur was supposed to inherit so that she can live off the land, she can live off of the inheritance. That's your responsibility, Onan. And so Onan hears that, but then Onan starts to do some calculations. And Onan realizes, if I give her an heir, that means that all of Ur's money and land will go to this new heir. But if I don't, then all of the money and the land will come to me. A baby's bad for business. And so Onan takes matters 
own hands and he does what he needs to do to make sure that he doesn't impregnate Tamar. But there's one thing that Onan failed to take into his calculations. It's the fact that our God cares for the widows. And that was a big miscalculation. And so then Onan is struck down dead. And here we have in Judah's family, not one, but two of the first people to be struck down judiciously by God. Coming from the same family, this line of promise. Judah looks at his youngest son, Shelah, and he's calculating what just happened to the other two sons who married Tamar. And he gives a half-hearted promise to Tamar that he's going to provide an heir for her later through the youngest. But in his head, he's not going to do that at all. It's half-hearted. And instead, we find Tamar languishing childless and husbandless in Judah's home. That's where we pick up in verse 12. Let's look there now. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, she was daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went to Timnah and his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear the sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up and, set at, and sat at the entrance to Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he didn't know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge should I give you? And she replied, Your signet ring and your cord and your staff that's in your hand. So he gave them to her and he went into her and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away. And taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he didn't find her. He asked the men of the place, Where is the cult prostitute who is at Anaim at the roadside? And they said, No cult prostitute's been here. So he returned to Judah and he said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, No cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, Let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat and you didn't find her. So let's pause there. Up until this point, Tamar was the innocent victim in this story, but that changes here. Tamar realizes that she, she's been given a false promise. She sees the youngest has grown up and she's not been given to him. And so she decides wrongly to take matters into her own hands. And here we have to jump back to the first five verses. Remember when he married a Canaanite? Judah married a Canaanite, and we said that God specifically said, don't marry the Canaanites. Why? Because you will adopt their practices. Well, one of the evil practices of the Canaanites was cult prostitution. It was a way of worshiping God by being with a prostitute. And here we find that Judah has taken that hook, line, and sinker. He's a different man. He's supposed to be reflecting God's way, but he's living like the world. And he goes down to have his sheep sheared, and he sees this prostitute by the road. Tamar has seized upon his sin. She posed as a prostitute, convinced him to leave his signet ring and staff as a surety before the proper payment of the goat could be delivered, and he happily complied. And we won't go any further into that because we don't need to. But what I would like you to see is this terrible portrait of sin. And we, we need to see it because there is a, a complexity, a depravity to sin that we often overlook. You know, sometimes we simplify sin and we say, well, you know, people sin because they're wicked. 
right? And people sin because they're chasing after passions. Well, yes, and yet it runs deeper. Judah sinned because he was chasing after his passions. But here we find Tamar, and she's sinning out of a different place, isn't she? She's sinning out of a place of desperation. And yet all of it, that whole mess, all of it is sin and displeases God. Sin sin runs deep, and we use different excuses to justify our sin, don't we? We should see that before we move further. And yet sin is sin is sin. It's a terrible thing. And it brings us, however, to the climax of this story. Look with me now at verse 24. It says, about three months later, later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she's pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. And as she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please, identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She's more righteous than I, since I I did not give her to my son, Sheila. And he did not know her again. Stop there. Let's look first at Judah. Here's Judah. He's probably got some harbored resentment against Tamar to begin with. Having lost two sons, I'm sure there's a part of him that's already resenting her. But here's Judah, fresh off of sleeping with a prostitute, a man who's been chasing after his passions and his desires and jumping over God's rules and commandments for a lifetime. And, and now Judah hears the report about Tamar's sin. And this causes his self-righteousness to flare up. Bring her out, let her be burned, is his response. Unfortunately, there are all too many Judas in the world. Men who fancy themselves as gods of their own little universe. Men who give themselves permission to cross all of these lines and to harbor and sinful thoughts and desires. And yet who demand a pound of flesh for the sins of others. Self-righteousness is an awful thing, a wicked thing. Now, Tamar knew that this was a risk that she was going to have to walk through, right? She knew that if her plan was successful, this would be the likely outcome. And so she, she moved into her plan, and she, in desperation, cried out, you know, look at these things. The person who put this child into me owns these things, which is to effect say to Judah, if you burn me, you are going to burn your unborn son as well. And her plan was successful. Not only did Judah relent from the execution, but by all accounts, this wake-up call legitimately served as a turning point in his life. Verse 26 says, and he did not know her again. So he put that behind him. And then our text concludes with an account of the birth of Perez and Zerah. Look with me at verse 27. We're going to read to the end. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor... One put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have Therefore his name was called Perez, which means breach. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. And thus concludes the family line of, of Judah. This is the family that our himself into. And so at this point, we're probably asking ourselves, why on earth are we talking about this on week one of Advent? That's a fair question, but I would remind you that it was Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that drew our attention to Tamar in the genealogy of Jesus. 
as he was reminding us that Jesus is the long-expected Messiah in the line of David, he intentionally included this curious footnote. And so we ought to ask the question, why did he do that? What are we, what are we supposed to see here? That's the question I want to conclude with this morning. And I'll say this. God's word speaks honestly about the brokenness of this world. And I am so thankful for that. God's word speaks honestly about the fact that this world is an absolute mess. Everywhere I look, I see problems that defy comprehension. I see systems that are so permeated by sin or circumstance that hope seems like a fool's game. I see families that have been so ravaged by sin, I can't even imagine a positive outcome. The story of Judah and Tamar, as shocking as it is, is the kind of story that's playing out all around us. Just hear that. As shocking as, you know, hearing all these details, the reality is we don't hear the details of our neighbor's stories. You don't hear the details of your uncle's story. And yet, I'll tell you, we are surrounded by stories that include these kinds of shocking details. We live in a broken, messed up, fallen, sinful world. And the Bible is honest about that. And Matthew, by drawing attention to the broken, sinful horribleness of this world, he's inviting us to marvel at the scandal and the glory of the Incarnation. God entered into the story. And it's as if Matthew says, are you not overwhelmed by that? Here, listen. God entered into this story. This horrifying, brutal, sinful mess of a story. This story that had no hero, that had no good guys, that seemingly had no hope. God was working. And he entered into this story. So what are we meant to see here? I want to pull out three things as we conclude. For starters, we're meant to see that God redeems wicked plans. See, if you were Matthew, would you have included this story as a footnote? Would you want to mention Judah? I mean, it was bad enough that in chapter 37, Judah was the one who sold Joseph into slavery. That was bad enough. But then he's, he's fallen in love with Canaanites, and he's sleeping with prostitutes, and all of that should be enough to have him written out of the story. And yet Matthew makes a point of writing him in. Not only that, he makes a point of mentioning Tamar, drawing our attention to the brokenness of the scene. Why is that? Well, I mentioned earlier that this story of Judah is, is plopped into the center of the story of Joseph. And who here remembers the climax of the story of Joseph? Remember, there's a line that Joseph says. His brothers come before him, and they're expecting, he's got their lives in his hands. He can kill them in this moment. But what does he say to them? What you intended for evil, God intended for good. You find it in Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph looks at his brothers, his brothers that that threw him in a pit to kill him, those brothers that pulled him out of the pit and sold him into slavery, that lied to his fathers, those wicked brothers who didn't care about him at all. He looked at them and he said, you meant evil, but God meant it for good. And then Moses, in his wisdom, inspired by the Holy Spirit, drops the story of Judah right into the center of that story. I think that closing line applies to both. What man intended for evil, God intended for good. Ur had evil plans, but God was up to something bigger. Onan acted with wickedness and uh, greed in his heart, but God's plan was not foiled. Judah was guilty of 
adultery and idolatry. Even in his lust, he was worshiping false gods, but God was still working. Tamar's solution was an abomination, but still God's plan was unfolding. Each and every person in the story was working evil in one form or another, but God was working all of it together for good. See that this morning. Rest in that this morning. An old Portuguese proverb says, God writes straight with crooked lines. The Apostle Paul said it even better. He wrote, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Some of us need to hear this today, so let me just say this loud and clear. Your story isn't over, friends. Maybe you feel like Judah. Maybe there's someone here today, you've crossed all the lines, and you did life your own way. You followed your passions into sin, and now all you can see is brokenness around you. You see kids that have walked away from the faith, and you feel responsible for that. You see consequences that you're going to have to live with for the rest of your life. You see a dark, miserable future with no hope in sight. But you need to hear this morning, the story isn't over. Or maybe you're here today and you feel like Tamar. You're you're actually the victim of the sins of others. People who should have known better. People you trusted. But you took matters into your own hands. You sinned and you strayed and you did things that you shouldn't have done because you convinced yourself that you had to. And now you feel helpless and you feel ashamed and you regret the lines that you crossed. But hear me this morning. The story isn't over. Or maybe you're just looking out at this broken, fallen world. You're looking at things that you can't wrap your head around. You're looking at at circumstances that are so marred. You're looking at the, the, the brokenness in our culture, the anger, the vitriol. You're looking at things that just don't make sense to you in any way, and you're wondering, the world is going to hell in a handbasket. What is God up to? Listen, the story isn't over. Take heart. This Christmas, as you look to the manger, remember that God draws straight with crooked lines. God brings darkness. What man intends for evil, God intends for good. Our God is the God who redeems wicked plans. See that. Second, we need to see that God redeems sinful families. I can almost picture a little twinkle in Matthew's eye as he's writing this. You know, as he's putting in the list, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, and then he stops by Tamar. You know, and he knows what he's doing, right? He's drawing our attention in. And I think when he wrote this in, I don't think he was doing this to be funny. I think that he was, I think his soul was singing as he wrote this in. This mystery that God entered into one of the most and sinful families that you could ever imagine. I think Matthew's soul was singing as he wrote it. The Prince of Peace inserted himself into a family of absolute chaos. The spotless Lamb of God tracing his roots back to this sinful lust of Judah. Now, the reality is, we all come from families with a dark, sinful past. We do. We're all sons and daughters of Adam. We all spring from families with angry fathers and rebellious mothers and everything in between. Now, some of us are more aware of this than others, right? Some of us have been more directly affected by that than others. But we do all share the story, and it's a tragic story. But this genealogy reminds us of a glorious hope that God redeems sinful families. See, Jesus enters into the family chain and everything changes. 
right? That's what we're celebrating in Christmas. We're celebrating the fact that 2,000 plus years ago, he entered into the story and hallelujah, everything changed. But he continues to do that amongst us to this day as men and women and boys and girls have an encounter with Christ and he enters into their family story and he changes everything. Sinful, dysfunctional family chains are being redeemed and revived all around us. Do you ever think about that? I will tell you, there are some weeks when I am just overwhelmed by discouragement. But this is one of the things that the Lord often draws my attention to, to to fill my sails and give me hope. I look out, and you ought to look out from time to time. See the men who look nothing like the fathers and the grandfathers who were before them. See the men who, by the grace of God, have changed. And this family chain that was full of, of adultery and abuse and chaos is suddenly now... It's been overcome by the light. And now there's peace and hope and joy. And there are children and grandchildren who are going to receive a different genealogy than the one that their father inherited. And there are women in this church who received habits and patterns from mom and grandma that they were going to perpetuate too until Jesus entered into the genealogy. And he changed everything. And he brought hope and life and renewal and he showed them their value and their purpose. And now they're passing on something entirely different to their daughters and their granddaughters. And God is doing that all around us. And sometimes we get so caught up in the here and now. Think about the generations that are changing in our midst. It's, I can't wrap my mind around it. We can't even begin to fathom the depth of what's happening just in this little gathering. And the reality is there's little all around the city where Jesus is entering into families and he's changing the story. That's what he does. He enters into our sinful family chain and he plucks us out and he puts us into his family chain and it's a miracle every time. And this Christmas, as you look to the manger, let it remind you that God redeems sinful families. It's what he does. And finally, as we conclude, we're meant to see in this story that God redeems broken people. I mentioned earlier that by all accounts, this encounter with Tamar truly appears to be a turning point in Judah's life. So let me just expand on that now. So if you remember in chapter 37, we meet Judah, and Judah is the one who's standing up saying, hey, let's sell our brother Joseph into slavery in a fit of jealousy. This is his answer. Let's, let's ruin his life and sell him into slavery. That's Judah before the story. But then we have this story with Tamar, and and it seems like a real wake-up call has come about in his life. Was it real? Well, we don't know until chapter 50 in Genesis. When they're standing before Joseph, and here are the brothers, and, and their life is in his hands, and Joseph is demanding that young Benjamin be kept in Egypt. And they all know that this is this is terrible. This could be a death sentence for Benjamin. And so who steps up? It's Judah. Judah steps up and he says, No. No, we can't. We won't. We can't let this happen. Take me instead. Take my life instead of little Benjamin. I will stay. I'll forfeit my life. Now, Judah's got his own life. He's got his own kids. He's got his own stuff that he could preserve, but he says, no, I'm laying my life down for the sake of this one. Judah's a different man than he was at the start of the story. God has changed him. The man who sold his brother into slavery the man who disregarded God's commandments so that he could satisfy his own passions, the man who could sleep with a prostitute on one day and blaze with self-righteous hypocrisy the next, that he deserved to be struck dead just like his sons. But instead, God brought him down low and he humbled him. And then he picked up this humbled man 
and he sent them and he gave them a a self-sacrificing, transformed heart. And it shines through in this glorious passage. That's what God does. He redeems broken people. In Matthew 1.21, after describing this genealogy that we're going to be considering, Matthew goes on and he says, the angels speak to Joseph. They say, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. See, Jesus entered into the family of Judah and Tamar so that he could save adulterers and prostitutes and hypocrites and traitors. He came into this world to take sinners like Judah and Tamar and like you and like me and to bring us into the family of God. As the Apostle John reflects on the incarnation, here's what he writes. Listen close. was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Let's make sure that we see that this Christmas. That our God entered into our story. He entered into our genealogy so that he could pluck us up and put us into his. He entered into the most horrific, sinful family so that he could redeem us and save us and pick us up and insert us into his perfect, glorious, eternal family. And you haven't disqualified yourself. None of you. If there was room for Judah, if there was grace for Tamar, then there's grace for you. Richard Sibbs has this great quote. He says, There is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. That is why Matthew included this curious footnote in his Christmas story. That is what we are meant to see as we marvel at the incarnation. And so as we look to the manger this Christmas, see the God who redeems wicked plans and sinful families and broken people. See and believe that there is a Redeemer. And this is his story. And by God's grace, somehow, this is our story as well. That's the miracle. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, uh, first and foremost, we want to praise you. You are so kind to us. Uh, Lord, remind us this morning that none of us could ever in a million years earn or deserve what you have given to us here that you so loved the world that you sent your son? You so loved sinners like us that you sent your son? You so loved Judah and Tamar that you sent your son? We don't deserve this. And yet here we are marveling at this greatest of all gifts, that God clothed himself in flesh, that we could be forgiven, that we could become children of God. Lord, I pray today for those who have been so hurt by the brokenness and the sinfulness of this world, that they've become jaded. Uh, Lord, those who have experienced the depravity of of broken, sinful families, those who perhaps of their own doing and their own sin are looking at plans that have been so ruined and distorted that that hope seems like it's impossible. For those who are so immersed in their sin that they feel like there's there's no hope There's no redemption for a person like them. God, I just pray in Jesus' name that today would be the day that they would see that you love them.
that you sent your Son for them. That there is forgiveness in Christ. That if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That you give us a new name, you place us in a new family, that there's a new eternal life and a new hope that is ours in Christ. And all we need to do is to look to Jesus and to ask. So I pray that today would be the day when lost and broken men and women would look to Jesus and ask. God, that you would insert yourself into that genealogy and that you would transform families, men and women, for the glory of God. Because that's what you do. That's what you've always done. That's why these horrific stories are in the Bible in the first place. It's to remind us that while we are horrific sinners, there is a glorious Savior. That there's more mercy in you than there is sin in us. Lord, so press that in deep, I pray. Lord, I pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would preach a better sermon as people go out of this place than I could ever preach. Lord, that your word would ruminate in hearts, uh, that you would press it in deep, and that you would change people. So Lord, we ask for this, we plead for this. Uh, Only you can give this. So Lord, would you, would you be pleased to grant salvation to us today? We ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Worship team, would you lead us?